Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner, and we're part of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be talking with Professor Anne Elias about her new book, Coral Empire, Underwater Oceans, Colonial Tropics, Visual Modernity, which came out this year, 2019, from Duke University Press. This fun, brilliantly illustrated, and beautifully written book examines the lives and work of two iconic coral photographers of the interwar period, Frank Hurley and J.E. Williamson, who introduced Western audiences to the Great Barrier Reef off Australia and the reefs of the Bahamas to think through how we have come to know coral reefs in the ways we do, and the complicity of this knowing with the forms of modernity that now threaten to destroy them. Without further ado, I give you my interview with Professor Ann Elias. Welcome. And to new books in science, technology, and society. Hello, Lance. It's it's great to talk with you. Yes. You know, before we even start the interview, I just want to say to listeners that this is an incredibly enjoyable book to read and is so well written, um, so much so that you could it, it almost could go, be um, from a trade press. And uh, so for people who are maybe not in the field of visual culture and so forth, uh, this still might be a, a wonderful book for you to read. Um, so then, and without further ado, uh, I'd like to begin the interview with just a few words about your intellectual background and how this project came about. Sure. Well, I'm an associate professor in what's called contemporary global art in the Department of Art History at the University of Sydney. And my area is visual culture. So I look at the intersections of fields of visual culture with natural history and other histories like war histories, histories of ornament and aesthetics. And right now I'm very focused on ocean histories. That's partly my background. I've written three books. One was on camouflage, which is a fantastic subject. And um, I've written on that in relation to war, art, and nature. But another book on flowers and their cultural history. And those two books, in a way, inform the book you're referring to, which is about coral reefs and the underwater in the 1920s. Um, So just to link that, uh, camouflage is uh, one of the conditions of coral reefs that people always pay attention to. The thing about coral reefs is that they're often considered one of the, um, I suppose, greatest ecological camouflages on the planet. So I had done some research into a scientist of the Great Barrier Reef, a man called William Dakin, and his research on the Great Barrier Reef camouflage really informed the current book, Coral Empire. And the other thing is my area of flowers is linked too because flowers are, we used to be called, coral used to be called the flowers of the sea. So those three books are interlinked and that's my um, intellectual background. Um, The subject of the book is 
um, really tracing the history of two explorers who set about in the 1920s wanted to be the first to film and photograph tropical coral reefs from the perspective of the underwater, not from above, and that was the key difference. And one was a very famous explorer, an Australian explorer, Frank Hurley, who many people know as the explorer photographer of the Antarctica with Ernest Shackleton. And the other was a man working in the Bahamas, and his name is John Ernest Williamson. He's also very well known uh, because he was responsible for filming underwater scenes for a 1916 Hollywood production of the first, actually, adaptation of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So that's the subject of the book. And how I came to the book is interesting because why would you put the Great Barrier Reef together with the Bahamas? I suppose that would be the thing. If I was picking up the book, I'd think, well, why, why is this person writing about both geographical areas? And that's how the book came together. The reason was based on a photograph that I had found. I'd found, well, when I say found, <laughs> a lot of people have seen this photograph. It's a very well-known photograph. It's in a very, very famous book uh, by Andre Breton, the leader of the Surrealists, his book Mad Love, which was published in 1937. And although a lot of people, thousands of people have seen, maybe millions of people have seen that photograph, no one had actually written about it. And it's an underwater photograph. And its caption says it's an underwater photograph of the Great Barrier Reef. And when I thought about that, I thought, that's odd. There aren't too many photographs of the Great Barrier Reef underwater at that time in history. So I started to look into it. And I started to research um, that photograph. And having everything digitised made this so easy. The caption of that photograph in Breton's book puts, um, attributes it to the New York Times. So just from my home computer, I got onto the digitised New York Times and searched for it. And I couldn't find it under the Great Barrier Reef term, so I tried underwater and it came up. I found the photograph. It was quite a moment. It was an incredible moment. Um, but it was actually a photograph of the Bahamas, not the Great Barrier Reef. And the photograph, in fact, was from a story about a man called, who I've just mentioned, John Ernest Williamson, who photographed from a submersible in the Bahamas in the 1920s. And he was actually on an expedition with the... Um, Field Museum of Natural History, when the photograph was taken, they were trying to scout out the best pieces of coral, the biggest sharks, because they wanted to make an underwater diorama, which is still actually in the Field Museum and is represented in the book. But anyway, um, so there, there it was. It was the Bahamas, not the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, I began to look into um, Andre Breton's digitized collection which is available for anyone on the internet and under his collection of photographs came up the same photograph so this was an incredible project and I got in touch with the archivist at the uh, Andre Breton archives and she very kindly sent me a digitized photograph of the front and back of what turned out to be the New York Times 
um, uh, source for this photograph, the uh, news agency photograph that Breton had obtained of John Ernest Williamson's photograph. <clears throat> and on the back it showed that Breton had clearly crossed out the name of John Ernest Williamson in order to switch the geographies to the Great Barrier Reef. And why he did that is anyone's guess, but probably because the Surrealists were so passionate about the uh, region of Oceania. So they were very passionate about Papua New Guinea region, the Australian region. They thought this was this kind of psychic geography of the world, the unconscious of the world lay in that part of the world. So it was all very exciting, a very exciting um, sequence of events, and that's how the book came together. You mentioned that these uh, decades uh, witness a transformation in people's perception of coral reefs. Can you describe that transformation and what's behind it? Yes, sure. Um, one of the key shifts in thinking in the 1920s for scientists was to think in terms of a coral reef as an underwater ecology, not as, a, as a, a, a part of the planet that you looked at from above, but a part of the world that you looked at from below. Um, and there was a view that the only modern scientific way of studying a coral reef was to get under the water and take a horizontal viewpoint. So in the 1920s, what, what ways were there to obtain the underwater horizontal view of a coral reef? And it turns out there are about three. One was to dive with a hard hat and air hose because this was well before the days of scuba. So divers were very much tied to having air supplies to a, to a boat above the water with someone pumping the air to the diver below and they wore that heavy uh, suit that could inflate with air to bring the diver up and then deflate to keep the diver heavy. But they had a hard hat and an air hose and they were very unmoverable. So that was one way to get under the water and have a look at a coral reef. Another one was to use a submarine or a submersible, that is to get inside an air-filled container or cylinder or um, object uh, that was big enough for a human body and had a glass front and go under the water. That's the device that John Ernest Williamson had at the Bahamas and how he was able to make films of the underwater of the Bahamas in 1916 when he uh, was involved with filming the adaptation of Jules Verne's film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And then the third way was to actually bring the animals and plants out of the underwater from a coral reef and place them in an aquarium on land and in air and then look at them eye to eye through the glass sides of a, of a tank or aquarium. And that had been pretty much the way of science up to that time was to use aquariums. So a scientist like William Beebe, for example, used a lot of different techniques. He was a diver. He'd go down in hard hat and air hose to look at coral reefs in the Caribbean area. He also had a lot of aquariums and he would bring animals out and study them in land on his terms in the air. So all those methods were used in the 1920s. 
Um, but what was impossible in the 1920s was to take a camera and a movie camera under the water, immerse it in water and get it to work. It was very early days and it wasn't only until the late 1920s that people were successful with this. So it was very difficult to get the um, the technologies to work underwater and you had to have a huge number of helpers to help you. Uh, so for the most part, photographers and filmmakers were unable to get over the technological difficulty in the 20s of taking cameras underwater. I hope that's answered your question. So in the book, you mentioned that the militarism of World War I in some ways shaped this, these projects, uh, both technologically and socially. Can uh, you describe that a little bit about uh, that relationship? The military technologies of the First World War, well, I think everybody was incredibly um, intrigued by the idea of a submarine. And submarines had been around since the 19th century, end of 19th century. But the the U-boats were totally of total fascination in the First World War. The idea that the underwater of the oceans could now be a space that militaries could occupy and they could stealthily move through space, unseen, invisible, and in the underwater, became totally intriguing to the public. And in the 19, um, I suppose in the 1916s, 17s, 18s, 19s, while the war was still on and just after the war, there are a number of um, general release popular films that came out about about the about warfare, submarine warfare. And because John Ernest, Ernest Williamson working at the Bahamas was essentially photographing the coral reefs underwater using what seemed like a military-style technology that was like a submarine, I think this really enhanced people's interest in what he was doing. Not only was he photographing the invisible, this, the part of the world that people couldn't see, the animals and plants and formations and terrains of the underwater, but he was doing it with a technology that suggested now that the planet was being completely colonised by human beings. And this was seen in a positive light. I mean, from our perspective today, that may not seem to be so great in the Anthropocene when we're suffering from the human impact. On the planet, but in the 1920s, it was utopian. It was the idea of human beings being able to control all elements of the planet, and so there was a link with warfare, um, and there was a link with the idea of modern technologies colonizing the planet and showing human strength on the planet. Those things were interrelated. Yeah. And so, you know, in these years, the 1920s, how did these guys forge a professional identity as a underwater photographer? Was this something, well, certainly it was something new. How did they uh, craft the personas and also the, uh, the infrastructure, the economic and social infrastructure to cultivate these identities? Yeah. Well, um, we're talking about 
Frank Hurley and we're talking about John Ernest Williamson. And I suppose what we have to remember is that they were both um, explorers. So John Ernest Williamson belonged to the Explorers Club, which was an elite club in New York. Um, Frank Hurley didn't belong to that club, but I've spoken to people in that club trying to do some research, and they said he would have been eminently suitable to the club, and that's tr- and that's true. And Western explorers were a very particular kind of man, let's put it that way. I mean, a lot of what they did was about masculine self-assertion. So when we're trying to think about their personas and their approach to photographing, um, it was through this um, this kind of mythical dimension to the idea of the explorer as the person who would discover. So there's this idea that the Western explorer would discover parts of the world. But of course, this was mythological, especially in the or mythical in relation to the oceans, because the coral reefs and ocean regions that uh, Frank Hurley and Williamson wanted to photograph and explore from under the water were already the sea country and home and territory and community of Ocean's peoples. So the, the idea of their discovery is extraordinary, the idea that they would think that there had been no one and nothing before in these regions of the planet before them, but that was part of their persona, a very important part of their persona. John Ernest Williamson would claim, for example, that he was the originator of underwater photography, although that was completely incorrect, whether he knew it or not, because a Frenchman in the 19th century had actually photographed underwater around 1900 or earlier. Um, But they were into this idea of the mastery of colonial space or this, this idea of this fantasy of being first to discover what they called the blank spaces of the planet. And I suppose the infrastructure, if you like, was more of a psychological infrastructure that was in place for them to think that way, is the myth of the European who, um, I guess, is superior in the world, uh, who is the first to name the world, to classify the world, to understand the world, and has that... um, that claim on um, intellectual pursuit over others, especially Indigenous others, I think, in the case of these two um, explorers. So someone like Frank Hurley, who made a big expedition into um, the Torres Strait and Papua New Guinea to explore the coral reefs underwater, as he said, and to be the first to do it, also talked about discovering the undiscovered Papua region, which was completely bizarre when you think about it. And it just shows you this kind of European dominance in thinking. When Papua New Guinea was so populated by Papua New Guineans, plus many white explorers had already been through Papua New Guinea by the time that uh, Frank Hurley went there in the 1920s, early 1920s, So to talk about a region as being empty and unknown and unowned as they explained the underwater oceans was really quite extraordinary. Um, But they saw also commercial value in the idea of perpetuating that idea of being first. It was was the idea of uh, of having um, 
a valuable commodity that they would go and extract in the form of photographs and films and bring back to their Western publics who were, you know, also keen to see parts of the world and to symbolically own it through these visual technologies of cameras and so on. Yeah, you know, one of the things I found very interesting in the book is this tension between these personae of of solitary, masculine, intrepid adventurers who brave the unique and exotic when, you know, at the same time, these guys are in the business of the mechanical reproduction of images for mass consumption. Um, What does this tension tell us about the visual modernity and the, the visual culture around coral reefs coming into being during these years? Yes, I mean, the that, that tension between the idea of the original and the first and yet being complicit with reproduction technologies in reproducing the world is interesting. Um, I think with the expansion of mass media in the 1920s, um, it, it had the potential to do a whole lot of things. And one of the things that it had the potential to do was to actually construct personas. Um, in the case of, say, Frank Hurley, who would send out images of uh, divers, pearl divers underwater, picking up pearls from the floor of the Torres Strait, which were complete constructions inside an aquarium with a glass front that he filmed on land, and then putting them through the new mass media channels out into the Western world and claiming that he had photographed the diver on the floor of the Torres Strait and then reproducing those photographs, sometimes by montaging new imagery into them. So some of those photographs sometimes had fish in them. Others from the same photograph had no fish. Some had corals. The same photograph would be reproduced in the world with no corals. Through this uh, reproduction technology, ironically, they were able to construct this idea of originality, of innovation, of being first of being explorers of virgin territories. I guess it's the idea of using mass media channels to get across your narrative to as many people as possible at a time when people were not very, um, let's say, familiar visually with how the underwater might look. And I guess in that sense we're vaguely susceptible to um, to being misled through the visual object. Hmm. And so you, you mentioned in the book that over the course of it, you're finding so many of these photographs, especially from Frank Hurley, were uh, not shot under the sea as they purportedly were, but were done in these aquariums and, and other, and other uh, techniques were used for for, for changing how the photographs looked. How do you think this, why does this matter, uh, I guess, to us today or, or to them in that time period, this uh, faking of the natural world? 
Yeah, well, this is a big question and it's ongoing. And there are people today who publish online who um, who raise the question of whether Frank Hurley's images of the underwater were fake or not and say categorically that they could not have been fake because Frank Hurley wouldn't do that. There is so much emotional store in the idea of authenticity attached to heroes that this is a huge area for consideration. So with the case of Frank Hurley, of course, he could not, he he claimed to have the technologies to film underwater at the Great Barrier Reef. He may have had the technologies to film under the water at the Great Barrier Reef, but he didn't film under the water, and there is no visual record, um, and there is there's no, no indication that he swam or was interested in anything to do with under the water, except the idea of being seen to have conquered the underwater as a as a discoverer and an explorer, and so he he he. He travelled through the Torres Strait and into Papua with a with a scientist um, from the Australian Museum, um, who was better at the water, who knew about water better than uh, Frank Hurley. But nevertheless, they both worked together to use their what was called native crew, that is the indigenous labourers that they had hired to do all their hard work. Um, to go to the reefs and to collect fish and corals and to bring them back. And they had an aquarium built at Port Moresby and it had a glass front, it had a glass top. They'd arranged the objects in there um, and then photographed them. And then the photographs would be sent out through the mass media channels as underwater photographs. There was never any indication of the technologies that is the aquarium that had made those photographs in terms of the public, the wide public. Go to his diaries and, of course, you read about the aquarium. But when these images were sent out into the popular realm, there was no mention of the use of the aquarium to make the images. So, of course, the public imagined, I suppose, that there was some contraption or some way in which Hurley had got under the water. And why was that important? because, again, it was part of explorer culture and the idea of natural history filmmaking and photography that these images were authentic. So the the connection between explorer culture that um, Williamson was sort of part of uh, and filmmaking, natural history filmmaking and natural history science in the early, let's say, 1900 to 1920, um, there was a, a massive debate around the fakery of image, images because if it was to be science, it had to be true and it had to be objective. And therefore, if there's disclosure about the technologies that simulate then that puts into question the scientific value of the record, the, the um, natural history record. So, so these were, you know, very um, 
So for, I guess, explorer culture and the scientists who were explorers and went out into the world and they made films and photographs, they made illustrations and so on, it was very important that their work would be seen as true and real and objective. Um, It was therefore a very emotional issue, this idea of the increasing um, uh, dominance of of technologies of reproduction and therefore simulation that come into media culture from 1900 onwards. It became a huge problem for natural history museums, for example, to show natural history films in the museums. They were too, they seemed too seemingly tied up with the commercial world of popular culture. And people try to separate those two things, science and art. The separation of science and art underpins the story I think I'm telling in the book. And did these men, did Williamson and Hurley think of themselves as scientists? And did did other people see them as scientists? Well, um, I think they did. I mean, I think it was, well... They thought of themselves in two ways, and it must have been quite as kind of split personality given the debates that were going on between the relative value to society of science and popular culture and art. But on the one hand, they partook in scientific expeditions. So John Ernest Williamson worked with the American Museum of Natural History, and he also worked with the Field Museum of Natural History, and the reason being that he had the submersible, and that meant he could get under the water in an air-filled chamber, and they could therefore observe and record and photograph and film the underwater in a way that they couldn't have done otherwise in, 19, in the 1920s. So it was a scientific device, I suppose, the submersible, and in that sense he was involved with a scientific mission. But, of course, his passion was to make films and photographs, and he liked to make animatronics, is that the word, where you make, um, you know, animated uh, um, animals like King Kong and so on. He made uh, a giant octopus um, out of um, mechanical means. So he was really interested in popular culture and his part in, in Hollywood. That was extremely important to him. And uh, filming and photographing had both purposes. One was natural history and one was entertainment, and the same with Hurley. On the one hand, he explored for the Australian Museum and he worked with a scientist, a very respected scientist, fish scientist, Alan McCulloch, and he therefore worked for natural history and for the seriousness of scientific exploration. On the other hand, he was an entertainer. He went around on stages and he presented what were called illustrated lectures with magic lantern slides and sort of magic devices, visual devices. After all, both of them worked with the illusions of light. They were artists in that sense. So, yeah, quite a split personality, I would say, for both of them. Can you trace, uh, or is it possible to trace the influence of these two men in, say, the the work of Jacques Rousseau after World War II or um, even up to nature documentaries today? Yeah, well, it's easier with John Ernest Williamson 
and Cousteau because there is a direct connection there through the Oceanographic Museum at Monaco. Um, and they were both part of the Explorer Club in New York. So it would have been at the end of Williamson's life and I guess the beginning of Jacques Cousteau's life. Um, so there's definitely a link there professionally between them. And um, I think Cousteau organised a, a postage stamp to celebrate the exploration work of the underwater that Williamson had undertaken in the early 20s. So Williamson is definitely lauded in um, those circles, um, ocean exploration circles, diving circles, underwater photography circles as an originator and an innovator. So he would be very happy about that because that was clearly very important to him. Frank Hurley, uh, less so. Frank Hurley, though, his, his explorations of the Torres Strait and Papua New Guinea were known later in the 1920s and I believe did inform some American expeditions down to Papua New Guinea in the late 1920s. And that was possibly the first time that photographs of the underwater of the coral reefs at that region were undertaken. Um, Frank Hurley would, and his work, though, even though it was simulated as underwater and taken through the glass sides of an aquarium, in a way has gone unnoticed compared to John Ernest Williamson. His uh, let's call it underwater photography of the coral reefs of the Great Barrier Reef, the Torres Strait and Papua, are the least well known of any of his work. He's, he's really known for his polar Antarctic photographs of icebergs and human tragedy uh, in the Antarctic with the Shackleton expedition. You know, over the course of this book, it, in the 19th century, you mentioned that coral reefs are largely seen as places of danger and shipwreck. Uh, and then in this period, in this interwar period, they become increasingly seen as uh, places of nature's fecundity in abundance. But of course, now, uh, similar to whales, they've become symbols of nature's fragility. How do you think engaging with this history of visualized coral helps us think through our relationship with coral today? Yeah, the coral reef. Um, as you say, the, the human interest in coral reefs has really changed over time. Um, today's perspective is the is the very real possibility of the extinction of the world's coral reefs through global warming and ocean acidification and pollution and so on. So we, you know, it's hard not to look at the history of coral reefs without the lens of the Anthropocene. In fact, you, I, don't, I can't imagine anyone doing a study of coral reefs today from say, a visual culture point of view, as my study is, that doesn't bring the Anthropocene and the human impact on coral reefs as a lens to history. Um, but certainly, you know, in the 19th century, 
and certainly coming out from the time from, you know, the great explorations of the 18th century, coral reefs were seen as these human traps for human beings, as disaster areas, as danger and terror and sublime horror. Um, uh, Captain Cook's journals and so on have influenced that. But, of course, all mariners tell terrible tales from those uh, centuries about coral reefs. And then, as you, as you put it, by 1900, things have shifted and the, the, I guess the coral reef becomes a bit of a privileged site which is based on its aesthetic beauty. Um, and so I guess by 1900, one of the great desires of Westerners anyway, Western Westerners, is to visit a coral reef. There are countless accounts of visiting coral reefs. And it's, it's not just scientists like William Savile Kent, <clears throat> who is an important scientist of coral reefs at the Great Barrier Reef in 1893, um, and who, who did such huge amount of work to bring, I guess, the aesthetic distinction of coral reefs to the public view in the Western world. And it wasn't just the scientists, but it was now a growing group of, let's say, ecologically minded, would you call them tourists? Not so much the kind of tourists that we know, but travellers who wanted to visit a coral reef and wanted to go there and experience what they'd heard was this beautiful, clear, um, uh, um, shallow oceanic region where they could um, immerse themselves in nature. So um, I think the, the expansion of tourism, though, does happen in the 1920s, but what also happens in the 1920s is the expansion of tropical ocean science. People like William Beebe, uh, largely influenced by Charles Darwin's theories of coral reef formation, or Charles Young, who came out to Australia from the UK and did a big exploration of the Great Barrier Reef, very inf influential in the 1920s. It was a lot of expansion of tropical ocean science then. Um, but what also happened, as I was trying to say at the beginning, was a shift to looking at the underwater of coral reefs, the horizontal knowledge view. And that happened in tandem with a growing aesthetic interest, I suppose, in popular media culture and especially photo-based magazines but also cinema in the um, – in the profusion of pattern and the animation and decorative, let's say, exoticism uh, of a coral reef experience. Kind of similar, like uh, sort of similar to a, the Western Orientalism, the idea of visiting the East to experience this pattern and profusion of the other. Um, visiting a coral reef was to experience the pattern and profusion of exotic nature. So, yes, um, a coral reef has come into focus in, in many different ways, but one is, as you say, horror, another is beauty and aesthetics, and another now is the, is, is the threat of extinction. Yeah, well, so that... Uh, covers what I wanted to ask you about the book. Uh, do, is there anything we haven't covered that you want to make sure is here on the interview? 
what I'd like to, I was listening to one of your podcast interviews with uh, Terence Keel, and he was talking about social beliefs that underpin, you know, scientific research and thought. And I thought what he was saying was so right. And it seemed to me also what I was trying to do with my book, Coral Empire, was really to show how natural history was a science that also has to be understood as being socially situated. And definitely, as I've tried to say in my book, underpinned by race and also assumptions about the the non-human world. And I I think there I'm really interested in what people like, you know, some writers talk about. Donna Haraway is a good example in relation to dioramas, which are an object that plays a big part in my book. Dioramas that are in the American Museum of Natural History, dioramas that are in the Bahama, in the, um, the Bahama Islands diorama in the Chicago Field Museum. And I love the way uh, people who reflect on dioramas today say, as Donna Haraway has, that behind every mounted animal there are social interactions between people and animals. Um you know, I think this is really important because if you take a diorama such as the Chicago Field Museum Bahamas diorama, really what lies behind there is not just a, a diorama of um, sharks and fish and coral reefs and sharks attacking fish to get their food, you know, the food chain idea, but there's also, as I've tried to show in this book, this whole social history that includes colonialism and the servitude of the labourers, in that case, the Bahamian, African Bahamian men who were part of the labourer class of workers that John Ernest Williamson hired as his native crew. And I think as a, as a project, the book had to interrogate that as much as, and I didn't want it to be just about aesthetics, even though my area is visual culture. If it had just been about aesthetics, then it would have denied this very important social um, situation for the objects that I was talking about. Well, I love this book, and I, I thank you so much for writing it. What are you working on now? Uh, right now I am <clears throat> working on a, a related project, but it actually deals with another geographical region, and that is the um, the underwater of Sydney Harbour. And it came out of a newspaper article that Frank Hurley wrote in 1921 about diving Sydney Harbour uh, in 1921 and what he saw. And Sydney Harbour is a really important um, colonial harbour around the 1900s. It has a huge amount of history, but one thing that has not been written is the underwater history of Sydney Harbour, and that's what I'm doing today. (laughs) Well, I look forward to it when it comes out. Um, Well, Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and um, to talk to you when new book comes out. Thank you very much, Lance.